you guys are part of the Woods Edge family, you know we got a clear purpose, clear mission here. We want to love Jesus with all our heart. That's first and foremost. We want to journey together. That means journey together in all kinds of groups, home churches. And then we want to bring hope to the world in all kinds of ways. That's what we're about. Thank you. As your pastor, I want to thank you for all that you do for the kingdom through your church here. Whether that's praying, giving, serving, loving, reaching out. Thank you so much for all that you do. So the Bible is has some bizarre things in it. And one of the most bizarre is the night that Jacob wrestles with God. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. We've spent a number of messages in recent months with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, God's chosen people. Abraham, in his old age, has a son, Isaac. Then some decades later, Isaac has twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And that's the Jacob of this passage, Abraham's grandson. Now, God is often identified, especially in the Old Testament, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these are three key figures in the beginning years of Israel's history. Jacob will have 12 sons from which will come the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is supposed to be God's man. Unfortunately, for most of his life, Jacob does not act much like God's man. Rather, he makes his way by his own wits, by his own scheming, by his own deception, by his own manipulation. Jacob is largely a self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-dependent man rather than depending upon God, which is the essence of faith. For example, when Jacob is a young man, he manipulates his older brother Esau out of his birthright as the firstborn, an important part of that culture. Secondly, when he's a little bit older, he will trick his father Isaac into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. And so Esau has been cheated by his brother, by his just younger brother, out of both the birthright and the blessing of the firstborn. And when that second thing happens, he resolves, I will kill Jacob as soon as my father dies. I will kill him. At that point, Jacob decides he better get out of there. And so he flees uh, to the homeland area of his mother's family. And his uncle Laban is there. And Laban is just as unscrupulous as Jacob is. And so they will match wits with each other for about 20 years. Now, during this time... Uh, Jacob will marry two of his daughters and have kids and have, accumulate large flocks, but the relationship between he and his uncle Laban grows so strained that he realizes, I better get out of here. So he had to flee there, now he's got to flee here. About the same time, God calls him to return to the homeland, so he's now making his way back. He has almost made, made it back to the homeland of uh, the promised land of what's Canaan at the time, what will be Israel. And he receives a message that his brother Esau is coming towards him fast with 400 men. And he is terrified. Does Esau still want him dead? And will he in fact kill all of his family and the whole family, the women and the children, and take his flocks? I mean, he is undone. And so, for the first time in his life, Jacob is in a situation in which he cannot rely on his own scheming. 
And he cannot rely on his own uh, resources and, 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 and how he can manipulate things. He recognizes for the first time in his life his deep need for God. God has put him in a situation in which he is completely helpless and his only alternative is to depend upon God. Now, in the Bible, more than any other person, Jacob is the picture of self-reliance. He's the picture of it. He's the poster child. Now, let's keep in mind that part of our humanness, part of our uh, sinful humanness is this extensive root of self-reliance. Now, to some extent, if you're a follower of Christ, God has weaned you from that or in the process of weaning us that, but that is just part of our sinfulness. In fact, just find any two-year-old and uh, try to help them something. I can do it myself. You know, pretty soon, you know, this, I can do it, self-reliance. Now, that's okay in a two-year-old. It's kind of cute. But in an adult, to have this proud, self-reliant, independent spirit, you know, I don't need anybody else. God, I don't even need you. That's not so cute. And that is the essence in many ways of sin. Our tendency, our inbred sinful tendency to rely upon ourselves in our pride. It's an expression of pride. Rather than in our humility and dependence to rely upon our Father in heaven. And uh, Jacob is going to take us face to face with the self-reliance. So the question is, in the, in the situations that you're facing right now, are you facing your life, to what extent do you have self-reliance and self-dependence, or to what extent do you have reliance upon God? You know, I'm talking about problems in marriage. I'm talking about problems in parenting. I'm talking about, you know, financial pressures or decision points at work or with family or uh, finances, any kind of thing. To what extent do you, is your habit of life to depend upon God, or to what extent do you rely on your own resources, your own efforts, your own scheming at times, even in times your own manipulation? What does God have to say to you and to me this morning about this most basic matter of self-reliance that we see so classically depicted in Jacob's life? Would you stand with me as I read the passage? We're in Genesis 32. We have moved from Abraham, skipping over Isaac, to Jacob. We're just doing a few uh, passages uh, in the patriarchs. Got one more after this one, two more after this one. We're in Genesis 32, verse 22. Picture this scene. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob 
Call the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Church, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. What a fascinating, bizarre event. The night Jacob wrestles with God. Now, when our passage began, remember, remember on the next day, he's going to face Esau. First time in 20 years. This uh, brother that he cheated twice who had resolved to kill him. And he sends in the cover of the darkness all of his family, all of his Children, all of his flocks across one side of the Jabbok River, small river probably, small stream. And then he is left all alone on the other side. You wonder, is he alone because sometimes some of us men like to, you know, we got problems or challenges, we like to kind of withdraw and process that ourselves. Is that what's going on? Or is he recognizing how much he needs to pray and just have this time alone with that? I hope is that. Or is it just that he's left on one side for a time, he plans to rejoin the family, but he's not there yet? We don't know. But he is all alone, surrounded by darkness, fear, and uncertainty. At that point, under the cover of, of darkness, he is all of a sudden attacked by this strange man. Now, it's, it's dark. He probably doesn't recognize who it is. I can imagine that he assumes it is either one of Esau's men or maybe Esau himself. But the man starts wrestling with him, and he's got to respond, and he, and he wrestles with him back. Now, as the night goes on, it will become more and more clear that, that this is not just a normal man. Right now, it's not clear to him, to Jacob, who it is. It's not clear to the reader. But as we go through, we will see that uh, this man wrestling with him is none other than God himself, appearing in human form. Now, from time to time in the Old Testament, we have these interesting encounters in which God appears in human form to somebody. For example, if you were with us in Genesis 18, we see that Abraham and Sarah are out their tents and three men show up at the tent. And later we will find out that this is God and two angels appearing in human form. And this happens from time to time in the Old Testament. Most likely, this appearance of God in human form is the pre-incarnate Christ. And so we, would, we could call this a, a Christophany, an appearance of God, of, of God or Christ. And of course, one day Christ would come, not in the form of a human, but in actual flesh and blood when he's the God-man. But, but here is the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is appearing in human form on this night to Jacob. And it won't be clear to him for a little bit. Now the question is Why? I mean, it's one thing for God to appear to Moses in the burning bush or to Abraham at that tent or in various other situations, but we never see something like this where God shows up and starts wrestling with a human. I mean, that's a bit odd. Why does God do that? Well, I can think of two good reasons why he might do it. One is because Jacob has lived his entire life fighting against God. He spent his whole life just kind of wrestling fighting against God, and God's going to depict this in a very physical way. Jacob, this is how you live. You, you live fighting against God and against man. 
But that's one reason. But how about a second reason? Is that in the very physical um, act of wrestling, God can make it so clear to Jacob how inadequate he really is. Now, here's the man who is so, you know, self-reliant and self-sufficient and self-dependent, and God's going to show him, in fact, how weak he, in fact, is in a very physical way. And his need for God at this most vulnerable of times. So, in the cover of darkness, this man comes and starts wrestling with Jacob. And And the text says that in verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, if he started... You know, not long after dark, I mean, that's a lot of wrestling. Some of you wrestled, and I, I just can imagine how tough a sport that is. And you know, I was a distance runner, but I always thought, you know, wrestling would be tougher. Glad I wasn't a wrestler. But they're wrestling through the night. And, uh, but before the breaking of the day, before dawn, God wants to leave. But maybe doesn't want to be seen in the daylight there by Jacob. And so he allows Jacob to wrestle with him. You know, the question would be, you know, if this is the pre-incarnate Christ, I mean, obviously he could just, you know, overpower him immediately. But there's something about the wrestling that is part of the learning that Jacob needs to learn. And he allows Jacob to stay in this fight and to wrestle. And he must have been exhausted. After a long night of wrestling, it is time to cripple Jacob. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Notice, he just touches the hip joint. Now, Philbert Yao over here, one of our physicians or any other physician here or medical type person, probably could tell us this a bit more, but I understand by talking with the doctor in past times, that the hip joint is a very hard joint to, joint to dislocate. In fact, the doctor talking to me about this said the only time he had seen it in his practice was when a man got hit by a train. And, uh, you know, quite a deal. But notice here that the text is very clear that the man touched the hip socket, threw it out of joint. And uh, don't you imagine at that time that probably Jacob may have been coming to realize that there was more going on than a normal wrestler here But at that time, whoa, who is this? Just touches and his leg falls limp. Now, if you are that wrestler there, if you're wrestling with somebody and your leg goes limp, what are you going to do? You're either going to fall to the ground, probably exhausted already, or you're going to grab onto your opponent so you don't fall to the ground. That's what Jacob does. We see that in verse 26 or 27 when, where's that at? We'll find it. Okay. Paul, help me out here. Where is that thing? Where is it? Twenty-six A. Oh yeah. All right. So then he said, "Let me go, for the day is broken." But Jacob said, "I will not let you go unless you bless me." And 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 just before that, we, we we see that that Jacob is just hanging on to him. Now, isn't that interesting, that in a very physical sense, Jacob, when his hip is thrown out of joint, he is just grabbing on, and he's clinging to God. Now, isn't that a picture of how he should have been living his entire life? That he should have been clinging to God, dependent upon God all of his life. But that's not the way he had been living. And so... uh, 
God cripples Jacob, and Jacob becomes a broken man. A picture of how he should have been living. God has broken Jacob out of his proud self-reliance. Now, church, the Bible, as you know, is never to be just sort of a history lesson or a nice Bible story. But the point of the Bible, the purpose of the Bible, is not to give us information, but to give us life transformation. The point is always God is speaking to us about our lives, and we need to respond to him. And so the point of this passage really is not to teach just Jacob about his brokenness and self-sufficiency. Jacob learned it in the act. But the reason it was recorded 400 years later by Moses and for believers down through the years, so that we would learn it. So that we would learn our weakness and brokenness and be crippled of our self-sufficiency. Now, hopefully, we're well along the way of learning that, but nobody is completely free of that. And God is teaching Jacob and he's teaching us that he will at times put us in desperate situations, difficult situations, not because he's a mean God, but because you and I need to learn that we can trust our God. He's a faithful God. And maybe right now he's teaching you that. Now, we want to be good learners, don't we? We want to learn those lessons fast. And, you know, God may bring it in our lives or he may allow in our lives, but God is using it. So whatever tough situation you're in right now, this is a learning opportunity to learn to trust in God. Or the, the situation you're going to face next month or next year. Every time you go through a hard time, just remind yourself, okay, this is an opportunity for me to learn dependence upon God, that he's a faithful God. And to be weaned a little bit more from my proud, independent self-reliance. So, as the daybreak, daybreak approaches, God's ready to leave and says something a bit unusual. He says to Jacob, let me go. This is verse 26. Let me go for the day is broken. Now, that's interesting. If God wanted to leave, he could just leave. But he tells Jacob, let me go for the day is broken. He is engaging Jacob. He's, he's engaging Jacob in this conversation. And Jacob responds with just the prayer that God has been looking for all of his life. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God loved that prayer. Because what's he saying? He's saying, God, I need your blessing. God, I need you. For the first time in his life, he had recognized, I need God. I won't let you go unless you bless me. And so it's clear to Jacob by now, this isn't just a man. This is more than a man. Perhaps he's already recognized this is the God-man. He will understand that. And so Jacob is desperate for God, and God loved it. No longer is Jacob fighting against God, striving with God, but he is dependent upon God, clinging to God, pleading for the blessing. I won't let you go. Remember, he reached out to grab him to hold, to hold himself up. Now, the book of Hosea refers back to Genesis 32. As far as I know, that is the only other passage in the Bible that refers back to this event. But in the book of Hosea, this is what it says about Jacob. It says, he wept and begged for his favor, for God's favor. That's strong words. This is what the Bible is telling us later, that Jacob, way back there that night of wrestling, he wept and begged for God's favor. I mean, he was really broken. He was really desperate. He was really dependent upon God. At that point, you think God would just bless him, but it's not quite yet. 
God shifts gears and, asks, and raises the issue of Jacob's name. He says, verse 27, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, we need to be clear. The all-knowing, omniscient God doesn't need to ask Jacob his name. He knows his name. But Jacob needs to confess it. And there's a backstory here because Jacob was named Jacob because in the Hebrew language, there's a couple of meanings. But one of the meanings was he deceives. And that is, in fact, a prophetic picture of how he lived. He deceives. Now, of course, we use the, the good biblical name Jacob Day to represent the latter part of Jacob's life. He's a, he becomes a man of God. But at the time for Jacob, it basically meant he, lived, he made his life by deceiving other people, as he did with his brother, as he did with his father, and as he did with Laban. He's a deceiver. And Jacob needed to confess this, like confessing his sin. Yep, I am Jacob in the Hebrew, Yaakov. Uh, I am the one who deceives. So God is engaging him and drawing him out. Jacob confesses it. I am Yaakov. Then God changes his name. Verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Israel means God fights or God strives, or it could go the other way. He fights with God or he strives with God. So it's the verbal form fight or strive or battle as either God doing it or him doing it with God. And that is his new name. Probably it means both parts. Probably it means, you know, that he has lived his life striving with God. In fact, we see that in the text. But probably also it means this is how you're supposed to start living your life. God will be fighting for you. God will fight for you. Church this morning, are you striving with God? Are you fighting against God and battling him and, 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 and resisting him? Or do you have a position of humility and surrender, dependence, like a child who are our models in the kingdom of God? And are you recognizing God will fight for me? I'm not fighting against God. God will fight for me. Do you remember at the Red Sea, the Israelites were about to cross the Red Sea but they get stuck there, and the Pharaoh's army is barreling down upon them, and the people are scared to death. Remember what Moses said? He says, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. This is Exodus 14, 14. Isn't that great? The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Just be still and watch what God does. Now, often we also are involved with doing things, but, but even then, God is fighting for us. What a truth that we need to learn. God will defend you. God will take care of you. God's got this. The Lord will fight for you. We need to learn the same truth that Jacob needed to learn. God fights. God fights. All righty, at that point, Jacob had been asked his name, Jacob. And now he decides, well, I want to know your name. And so we see in verse 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? Now, that's very God-like. Um, do, do you read the New Testament sometime and notice so many times people will ask Jesus a question, and he will either answer them with another question or just ignore it altogether. He feels no obligation to respond. I mean, sometimes they're just completely off track, and he'll just go to the heart of the point. 
In fact, God revealing his name means God revealing his nature, and he chooses when to do that. Not, not us. Uh, God can be a bit mysterious. There's a, a mystery to God's name because God is the incomprehensible sovereign God. We can't figure him out completely. There's a mystery. When Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 returns to this planet, he will have a fourfold name riding on the white horse. One of those four names, it says, is a name that nobody knows. And we see that reflected here. God says, sometimes God tells people there's a name, like in Moses. Sometimes uh, he just ignores it. Why do you ask my name? But then, notice what happens next. In 29, and there he blessed him. That's why Jacob wanted God, I need your blessing. When we say we need God's blessing, we're saying, God, we need your help. We need your favor. We need your protection. We need your wisdom, Lord. We need your strength. We need everything that you got and I don't got. And there God blessed him. Interesting that God doesn't tell Jacob his name. His name actually was implicit God's name was implicit in the new name for Jacob because that new name was Israel. Now, whenever you see the suffix E-L-L, that is some reference uh, to God. All of you Michaels out there, uh, that comes from, uh, is a reference to God's name El or Elohim. About that. Who is God, actually, is Michael. Uh, Israel, God fights. There was a uh, a, a, train, a train of meaning in it for Jacob earlier. He strives or he fights with God, but it also means God fights. The Lord will fight for you. And 400 years later, at the Red Sea, Moses explains to people, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. So, uh, that suffix, Israel, points, that's my name. I'm God. I'm Elohim, or El, as it sometimes is shortened. All righty, after that, God departs, this strange wrestler departs, who is in fact God, leaving Jacob all alone, exhausted, sweaty, and broken, but a new man. He's broken, but blessed. He's now blessed by God. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of that place Peniel. Now you recognize those Hebrew words that end in English letters E-L, Peniel. The first part of that is the Hebrew word for face. So that means the face of God. Jacob explains that in verse 30. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He knows who it was. That's why he desperately needed his blessing. Oh, God, will you bless me? Will you bless me? Last couple of sentences in 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Some of us know all about limping hips. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So every time the Jewish people still to this day uh, pass by and don't eat the sinew of the hip of whatever animal it is, there's just another reminder of that night when Jacob wrestled with the angel. What a story. <laughs> what an unusual episode. What was God saying to Jacob? He said, Jacob, look, you lived your whole life relying upon yourself with your own scheming and, and manipulating and saving, and it doesn't work. It hasn't been working. You need a new way of life. You need to learn your brokenness and your weakness and how much you, in fact, need me. But the bigger point this morning is what is God saying to you? What's God saying to me? 
I hope you've learned this lesson. I hope you have been learning this lesson. Many of you have, but none of us has got it completely. God is saying to us, give up all of your sinful self-reliance and trust in, and trust in me. Give up all your self-sufficiency and manipulation. Learn to trust completely in my favor, my blessing, my power, my wisdom, my strength. Live your life trusting in me and not yourself. Isn't that biblical faith? Isn't that the essence of faith? Think about Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Don't lean, don't trust on yourself. Trust God with all your heart because you know he's good, because you know you need him, because you, you, you know he's, he'll take care of you. In fact, what we really need to know is that we don't even breathe a breath apart from God. We are so dependent. You know, sometimes you're holding a toddler and, uh, you know, they're one or two and they're squirming and they want out. They don't realize that you're holding them up and if you let them go and break away, they fall on the ground. We're like that. We're fighting against God at times and we don't realize that if he withdraws from us, we don't even breathe. We are completely dependent upon God. After the first service, I was talking with a man who's walked with God a long time, and he said, Jeff, I'm really trying to, you know, I feel like I've learned that a lot for the big things in life, but for the everyday little things, I'm trying to learn that. That's just the way you live, that I'm dependent upon God and his strength and his grace. Now, church, there is a very simple test whether or not or to what extent you are self-reliant or God-reliant. Very simple. This is how you know. If you're facing a situation, say you've got a big problem with your family, and if you don't pray much about that, then count on it, you are a self-reliant person. But if you've got this problem situation, say with your family, and you are praying hard about it, to that extent, you are dependent upon God. You're praying tells all the universe how dependent you are or how Jacob-like you are. How are you doing? How are you doing? That's probably a little bit uncomfortable for most of us because all of us could raise the bar. One man put it this way, the self-sufficient do not pray. The self-satisfied will not pray. The self-righteous cannot pray. Prayer shows our dependence upon God. Are you praying much? Do you recognize the desperateness of of your need for God? And so you're calling out, oh God, big time, I need you. There is a passage. In fact, one of the couples here this morning used it in their letter. From 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. It is the ideal example of what we're talking about. Because King Jehoshaphat has this, he's the king. And this huge, vast army is coming against him, and he gathers the people together to pray and fast. And at at verse 12, this is what he says. He says, at the end of his prayer, For far we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, isn't that a great prayer? I love that prayer. One of my favorite prayers. Because here's Jehoshaphat saying two things. You look at, look at the screen. He's saying two things that he doesn't have. I don't have the power to do this, and I don't have the wisdom to do this. But my eyes are on you. 
Is that your heart about all of life, big and little? Now, sometimes that problem is so overwhelming, uh, it's just obvious to us. Lord, I, I don't have power to fix this. I can't change this marriage. I can't change this child's heart. I can't change this situation. But Lord God, my eyes are on you. I'm trusting you. Lord, I need your blessing. Or think about, go from 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament to 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 12, where Paul has this thorn in the flesh and he seeks God repeatedly. Lord, would you please remove that? And God says no. And in chapter 12, verse 9, God explains it when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. So the power of Christ will rest upon me. Church, God will put you in situations from time to time or allow you to be in situations from time to time so it is so clear how weak you are and how much you need him. Now my thinking is that let's just be as quick a learners as possible <laughs> so we don't have to get in too many of those situations. But I can think about my life. I can think about challenges and struggles and problems of all kinds. Marriage, parenting, finances, uh, decisions at work, um, physical health problems, mental health problems. I tell you, if you've had mental health issues, you know that you don't have the power to change that and you don't know what to do. And that builds dependence upon God. Are you learning what it means to be like Jesus? who depended upon God. I cannot do anything without the Father. Or are you still living like a little two-year-old with God, fighting and screaming, I can do it myself, I don't need you. And you can't even give yourself breath. God is saying to you and to me, give up all your self-reliance and learn to trust in me. You guys ready to learn that? I am. Please stand with me. <clears throat> the biggest example of self-reliance is when you say, I can save myself. I don't need a savior. I can live a life that's good enough. I can save myself. That is the height of self-reliance, proud, arrogant self-reliance. But brokenness is when we say to, to Jesus, Jesus, come and save me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You can breathe that prayer right now, right now, and come to Christ, come to eternal life. Jesus, would you save me? Have mercy on me. Lord, help us each one to learn what it means to depend upon you, who is the source of every good thing that we've ever had and of every good thing in the universe. Help us. Amen.